0: Welcome to Right's Up Right Now, a podcast from the Oxford Human Rights Hub. I'm Natasha holcroft Emmis. Today I'm speaking with Professor Michael Ford QC, a barrister at Old Square Chambers and Professor of Law at the University of Bristol, who specialises in labour law, public law and human rights. The spread of COVID-19 has affected many areas of our lives and brought with it onerous implications for our rights and freedoms. Governments around the world are adopting stringent measures in an attempt to tackle the public health emergency created by the virus. The instigation of a UK-wide lockdown entailed particularly heavy repercussions for our rights. It has affected our ability to lead our lives freely and, across many sectors, to work as we normally would, or at all. The impact of this disruption will fall most heavily on those whose livelihoods, health and security were already fragile. Furloughed employees, those who are self-employed and those who must now seek social security benefits face an unprecedented level of uncertainty. Restrictive measures adopted by the government must be sufficiently robust to tackle the challenges posed by the virus, while also supporting those whose livelihoods are now at risk. Today we will be discussing the impact of coronavirus on workers' rights in the UK. Professor Ford, thank you for joining us today.
1: It's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Let's begin by setting the scene for workers' rights before the coronavirus pandemic. How far had the UK come in securing protection for workers' rights prior to the pandemic?
1: Well, that's a big question. The workers' rights in the UK are principally now Underpinned by EU law there there's a been a pretty long campaign from principally the conservative governments but also its predecessor coalition governments and even before that new labour not to go beyond the minimum that of EU protections. Um, so we we aren't that great on domestic rights that aren't underpinned by EU law. the most important ones are probably. The unfair dismissal protection and the national minimum wage. Virtually everything else in UK law is dependent upon the EU and that includes especially discrimination law, duties of work, consultation and so on and so forth. Now all that, even despite Brexit, all that edifice is in place but I think it's fair to say UK law doesn't provide much protection for those who are placed who on on decisions to shed labor. Um, in particular, the, the rights to redundancy payments in those circumstances are pretty low and are confined to those who are employees with two years service. There's a possibility of claims for unfair dismissal, but the focus tends to be mostly on whether or not the employer acted reasonably in selecting for redundancy. It won't challenge the actual decision to make redundancies in the, in the first place. And there are provisions on collective consultation in the uh, owing their origin to EU law but those two tend to be more focused on the whether or not there was a process of consultation rather than whether or not the actual decisions to make people redundant were justified and they only apply when certain minimum numbers are triggered. There are some ancient I say ancient; they're pretty old provisions providing for payments in the in circumstances where people are put on short time or no working, but they're they're rarely um, referred to nowadays. So, in summary, there's not really much protection against the management decisions to get rid of workers because of the crisis. there are more protections where people's wages are cut or they're placed on short time working. Um, but their practical impacts and other, and other issue altogether.
0: Thank you for that. Um, if you had to pick out a couple of sort of big issues in workers' rights uh, in the UK before the pandemic, what would you say were the kind of hard-hitting issues that were facing workers?
1: Well, I, you know, everyone's biased on what they focus on. I focus on two really big issues. One is Brexit, of course, because um, the come the end of December, when IP completion date is reached, then all of the relevant rights derived from EU law are vulnerable to repeal. So that's number one big issue, to what extent once the UK is uh, freed from the EU, is, is no longer bound by EU law, will these rights be watered down? Um, the other big, big issue that's come into increased prominence following the decision of the Supreme Court in unison is the extent to which workers have effective means of enforcing their rights. Um, that's that's an issue that's taken on a lot more prominence post-unison because you may have many, many rights in the statute book. But if the enforcement of those rights is dependent upon individuals going to an employment tribunal and obtaining some form of deterrent compensation, um, whether or not they actually uh, give effect to those rights at the, system, at the system level across the board is a bigger and more, and much more difficult question. So I think those are the two big, big issues at the moment.
0: That's fascinating, especially the um, ability of people to enforce their rights and the ability of the courts to make that happen for people.
1: Yes, well unison kind of showed first of all the problems people had in getting to court. Secondly, that the if they did, the compensation levels tended to be very, very low. Not surprising, lots of these claims of small sums of money. And thirdly, perhaps most alarming of all, that even when people did win in the tribunal, often they didn't actually ever get paid anything. There was a BIS survey in 2013, I think it was, that showed approximately half of those who won some money in the tribunal didn't get paid. So yeah. Big issues
0: and do you think that of the issues facing workers are they the same but more extreme due to the public health crisis or has the onset of the virus generated novel challenges for workers rights
1: well some some of them are the, some of them are the same but they're also novel I mean you won't be surprised to hear me say that in a way you can see there's two broad issues here there's the protection for those in the shutdown sectors. That's estimated to be by the Resolution Foundation, who've done a lot of tremendous work in this area to about 6.3 million workers. And secondly, those there's the protections for those who are still at work, um, particularly those called key workers in areas such as health retail and personal services, estimated as about 8.3 million according to the Resolution Foundation. Now, to some extent, we're seeing the same issues arise that have arisen in the past. I mean, both groups. That is, those who have to work and those who are in the shutdown sector tend to be dominated by the low paid, uh, by the young and by disproportionately by women. So you see a familiar pattern emerging that the most vulnerable workers, both in terms of those who've lost their income stream and in terms of those who are forced or quite to carry on working, are those who are at the most tend to be the most vulnerable sectors of the labor market. In addition, in both sectors, you find disproportionately large numbers of those working on zero hour contracts. It won't surprise you that those in the service sectors are often on zero hour contracts in retail and health and the like. But equally those in the shutdown sectors are also, tend to have a disproportionately high number of zero hours workers. Now these are kind of familiar problems to us in labor law because the extent to which labour law protects those who are don't work on the standard full-time permanent contract of employment is a familiar issue. Zero-hour contracts exemplify it, and equally, it's a familiar issue that various groups, in particular women and, and young, and tend to be disadvantaged in the labour market. So those, those, are, those are familiar, but then we've also got a whole new set of issues ar- arising because of things like the coronavirus job retention scheme that the government has just put in place, probably the biggest state intervention in the labour market in my lifetime, maybe since the Second World War. And then other issues such as, you know, the provision of PPE, uh, personal protective equipment, that is, those continuing working. So no surprise, both sets of issues have arisen here.
0: Let's turn now to the impact of the pandemic and the measures adopted to try and control the spread of the virus, some of which are restrictive of our normal activities. Which measures would you say are having the biggest repercussions for workers?
1: Probably, again, you look at those, those that division I've talked about. First of all, those who've lost their jobs. I don't know the precise figures for those off the top of my head, but you may have seen in the press announcement, for example, the British Airways is just about to make 12,000 people redundant. There are also an, inno- an awful lot who have been furloughed as it's called, that's the new term that we're having to become familiar with as labour lawyers. That means the workers are instructed to cease all work, they're not even working from home, they're told to cease all work and then the government under this uh, enormous and unprecedented intervention Guarantees 80% of their wages up to a maximum of two and a half thousand per month. So that's had an enormous effect because huge, huge numbers have been furloughed. Um, original estimates were of um, eight or nine million, I saw from the um, Office of Budget Responsibility and the Resolution Foundation. So that's measure one those who have been lost their job or been placed on effectively no work. Um, and are subject to a compensation scheme. Um, And the other big issue, of course, is well, what about those who are carrying on working? Um, To what extent are they being given proper protection in relation to their working practices? Um, And as I've said, they're often low paid workers and they, they end up working in workplaces where isolating themselves isn't easy. You think of the people working in warehouses arranging to deliver goods, arranging for goods to be delivered to households, and you think especially of those in the health service who've received, and care homes who've received an awful lot of attention. To to what extent are they being provided with proper um, equipment to protect them either from the virus or to ensure that they don't transmit the virus to others for whom they may be responsible coming into contact with. So, yeah, I'd see those as the two main issues.
0: Mm. What role does human rights law play in ensuring that workers are protected in the ways that they need to be protected during these times?
1: As always, it depends what you mean by human rights. I mean, if you're talking about a broad conception of human rights as extending uh, Beyond narrow rights against the state for to express political opinions as embracing socio-economic sort of rights, then it has some. I mean, the in a sense you could see even the duties about safe work equipment. You can see those as going back to um, protection of bodily integrity um, and other such fundamental human interests. And there there have been some attempts to argue that in addition to the various regulations on personal protective equipment, those working, which uh, again owe their origin to EU law and we have specific legislation um, designed to require the the provision of that equipment. There's the potential for arguments based on article two of the convention in relation to the right to life, because of course coronavirus, um, regrettable as it is, ends up generating the potential for affecting the right to life. So, there have been arguments raised that um, in the sphere of workplace health and safety, the duty would not just be imposed on the employer under the, the relevant regulatory framework, but one might have scope for arguments based on Article 2 to so the effect that the state owes duties to um, ensure that proper protective equipment is provided for people. And, and secondly, of course, you've had the invocation of the kind of arguments based upon. Uh, minimum income levels and protection of work that figure in uh, the more the social socio-economic ends of the human rights argument. I'm thinking of instruments such as the European Social Charter and so on and so forth, and the extent to which those broader socioeconomic rights ought to be protecting people um, against job losses, loss of income, and so on and so forth. I should say that there, there's another aspect, of course, which is though those who've been sent home on sick leave are often only entitled under UK law to statutory sick pay, which is set at pretty low levels. And and there's another issue there as to the extent to which those people are being given a sufficient or adequate income. And there's an ongoing debate as to whether or not those who are sent home on statutory sick pay, which is, as I've said, at very low levels, are eligible to be furloughed and therefore receive 80% of their full wages. I don't want to get into the technical details of the scheme here, but you can see that there's potential for a big discrepancy that if you're sick or required to be shielding, as it's called, um, to protect yourself from the virus, you may only be entitled to the very low levels of statutory sick pay, where if you're sent home on no work, potentially under the furloughing scheme, you're entitled to 80% of your wages. So there's a big issue there about, protecting people's basic level of income
0: it just seems like some people might be subject to quite arbitrary differences and but but significant differences in their in, in their take-home pay
1: yeah and there there's a big issue arisen interestingly enough in relation to pregnant women there was an announcement on the 16th of march saying that uh, the best thing for pregnant women was to go home and um, not be in contact with other workers as a result of which many employers sent them home and paid them simply statutory sick pay. Now, that meant those those women received extremely low levels of uh, money, effectively. Now, under the relevant UK legislation, if you suspend a woman from work because she's pregnant, you're supposed to pay her pretty much full pay. Um, there's some technical wrinkles, but that's pretty much the position. You now, on advice that um, Tara Monaghan, uh, QC and I did address this whole issue and we ended up concluding that this was all actually a big legal error that those women weren't eligible for statutory sick pay, um, should have therefore been, if they were sent home, should have been suspended um, for safety reasons, but in which case they should have received full pay rather than the extremely low level of statutory sick pay that they were in fact receiving. So there you can see a. a the effect of coronavirus has had a particularly serious impact on um, pregnant women who, as we know already, see the enormous piece of research done by BEIS and the Equality and Human Rights Commission are especially vulnerable to uh, being treated disadvantageously or badly at work.
0: Yeah, obviously you've got the um, the sort of gender issue there as well and it's interesting that, that work, uh, employers rather would be classifying pregnancy as something that entitles you to sick pay. Strange sort of categorization.
1: Well, it was partly they, they got confused, partly because of what the, the government initially told them. I mean, one, one of the whole aspects of this from a lawyer, which at an intellectual level is fascinating, but a personal level is often um Distressing to see is that the, the laws almost or the, the policies are almost having to be made up overnight. So, on, on the one hand, employers were told the best thing for pregnant women is to send them home. On the other hand, the later legislation that came out in, indicated they weren't <laughs> eligible for sick pay, even though that was the indication that had been given beforehand. So, you, you're seeing an awful lot of confusion in what the actual legal protection of people is partly because these schemes and changes to legislation are being introduced so quickly that often you can't quite work out what the actual effect of them is um, until it's too late, because there's no consultation going on. There just isn't time.
0: Could we drill down a bit into some particular issues facing specific kinds of workers? One category is employees who are being put on furlough leave. What's the position of furloughed employees and how effective do you think the furlough arrangements will be in avoiding large scale redundancies?
1: Yeah, I think they are going to be effective to an extent. Um, I, th- I think there's a big problem in applying them to zero hour agency workers, the, which Alan Bogg and me have highlighted in some pieces we've written on the UK Labour Law blog. The real problem with agency and zero-hour contract workers is that if there's no work to be given for them, there's no duty to pay them. So an employer can simply say, all right, there's no work for you. Um, By all means, if it picks up, we'll give you some work. But in the meantime, they owe no duty to pay. So there's a big problem for them in relation to the extent to which employers are going to bother to take the decision to furlough them, because the decision is ultimately for the employer. Now, the employer may be kind and say, all right, we are going to we'll take a positive decision to further you and we'll claim 80% of your payback. But an employer equally may just think, well, you know, I don't really want this ongoing problem on my hands. We don't need to furlough them because we don't owe any liability to pay them any money so long as we don't have, so long as there's no work for them. Now, that's very different from an ordinary employee because an ordinary employee if they're ready, willing, and able to work, you have to pay them, even if you haven't got work to give them. So there, the employers do have an incentive to furlough, but with zero hours type workers, there isn't. So I think that's one gap in the scheme. There are others, but the other fundamental problem is is this, that the scheme is at the moment due to expire at the end of June. At the moment, employers are holding back on giving notices of consultation for redundancies Um, The general period of notice is um, 45 days but once that horizon comes into view it may be that before that employers are going to start giving notice in other words they won't make people redundant whilst they can still recover 80 percent of their wages but when they see the expiry of the scheme coming into view they will be anticipating making redundancies to take effect after that because it doesn't need me to tell you we're anticipating a large recession coming on the back of coronavirus. So the scheme is working as a temporary expedient but exactly how it's going to fit as we approach the cliff edge there are discussions going on about trying to avoid it having that effect but you can see that's a potential big big problem that effectively the scheme will work while it's up and running but it can't go on forever At the moment employers see the end date coming up, they will say, well, we're going to get rid of everyone or or large numbers of the workforce with effect from that date. So that's the skin cliff edge that uh, is is the worrying feature of the future.
0: And another group of people who are in a very precarious position are those who are self-employed. There is a government scheme to preserve a percentage of the income of those who are self-employed. Do you think that the scheme is adequate?
1: Um, I'm not such an expert on the self-employed scheme. There, there's obviously a problem in it. it's it got income thresholds in it. The, 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 the aspect that's received most attention is that those who are providing work through their own company, which is not an uncommon means of the provision of labour these days. So instead of doing it, you're not you're not doing it, you're not employed by the institution for which you're working. You're not a direct employee, nor are you simply providing as an individual, so you're not in the capacity of self-employed. Rather, you're providing your labor through a company which you've incorporated, and the company may end up paying you something of a salary. Um, but you're you are you 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 in a sense end up falling between the two schemes. Now it may be you can recover under the employee scheme 80% of so much. Of the salary you pay yourself in your capacity as director or employee of your own company, um, if you follow, but you you will these people will often end up recovering much much less than they would do under either scheme, so they end up not not entirely excluded they they go into the employment scheme, but they don't recover as much as they would do under the self-employed scheme they don't recover as much as they would under the Um, employee scheme and um, this is a problem that's been pointed out a lot but at the moment there's no mean there's no suggestion to of addressing it so you get people who fall between both schemes I mean you can see a similar problem with zero hours and agency workers in a sense because they end up if they're not furloughed getting getting no benefits uh, at all
0: and I guess in a similar kind of bracket is gig economy workers um, because they are notoriously in quite a precarious position, are the current measures having a substantial impact on gig economy workers?
1: I've not seen figures specific to the gig economy, but you can see they exemplify some of the problems I've talked about already. Um, one problem is they they won't be entitled to pay unless they're provided with work. So if they are um, As as I've said, if the employer just says, well, we're not going to, we've got nothing to give you, we're not going to use you, they end up not being, and decides not to further them, they won't be eligible under the employee scheme. The other aspect that they will confront in relation to the employee scheme is that the employee scheme doesn't really work by deciding whether people are really employees or not. There's a lot of case law in the UK in establishing that even if you call someone self-employed, the correct legal question is whether they are genuinely and really employees in accordance with the factual way they operate. That's not how the scheme operates. To be eligible on the scheme, you actually have to be on your your earnings have to be taxed under what's called the PAYE regulations. If you're not taxed under the PAYE regulations, you're not eligible for the employee scheme. Many of those who work in the gig economy will not be taxed under PAYE. Consequently, they will not be eligible at all for furloughing under the employee scheme. Now, it may be they're eligible in those circumstances under the self-employed scheme, um, but that's another issue. But you can see that's another reason why those in in the gig economy May end up not being eligible under the eighty percent employee scheme.
0: That's really interesting. It's kind of um, an indirect um, way that they may lose out because of the structure of their arrangement of employment.
1: Yeah, well, I, th- I think to to give some sympathy to the government, they they had to find a way of making this scheme easy to operate that wouldn't involve fraud. Because if they just said, well, anyone working for anyone can claim 80% of their wages, it, it would it would potentially be open to forms of fraud. So the way they've tried to do that, I think, is by saying, well, you have to be paid via PAYE. If if these if people are p- paid via PAYE and the employer can point the record to records of that, then it can claim for them. That's a crude summary. So they had to have a sort of system that was easily administratively workable. But the effect of that is that those who are what we sometimes call bogus self-employed, that is people who are really in a dependent labor relationship, even though they're described as independent contractors and self-employed, they often won't be paid via PAYE. Why? Because the employer will try and want to make them appear as if they're not employees. So and and paying them via PAYE. Is almost an admission, they're really employees. So you could see various aspects of labour law working unhappily together here because, in, a, in an attempt to stop people being employees and having all the rights of employees, employers won't pay them via PAYE, with the consequence that they won't be now eligible um, to claim under the furlough scheme in respect
0: of them. Some of the measures that have been brought in, such as staying at home, isolating ourselves, these have resulted in an increase in flexible working methods. I wonder if this transition has highlighted any gaps that may have already existed in accommodations for workers, such as people with disabilities or caring responsibilities. Do you think that we might move to a a flexible working model moving forward?
1: um I'm, I'm not sure about that i mean w- one of the one of the things that's happening under the furlough scheme is you, you to be eligible you have to be given no work at all why is that i think i'm not really sure i, th- I think in a way the government again needed a sharp dividing line it couldn't it, it was probably a, meant to be a, some sort of anti-fraud thing they didn't want people effectively working and the employer then recovering 80% of their wages or some percentage on the basis they were only doing some of their duties. You can see the real problems in working out how much they were or weren't due, doing. On the other hand, there's similar problems in working out whether people are actually doing nothing. Because of course, even though the scheme says you've got to be doing nothing, it's very hard to see how it's gonna debar people who will end up checking their emails or doing other things. So that's issue one, the scheme itself in a sense is not in favor of flexible working because the idea under the scheme is is all or nothing. You either do no work and claim under the scheme. If you do some work, the scheme ceases to bite. Now, the the other thing you're asking the bigger question is well, what about, is, is this gonna prompt new forms of flexible working in the future, working from home? Maybe, who knows? I mean, the thing I've got most experience, of course, is the court systems and the courts have come on light years overnight. In that extent, it's like a war in terms of the technological developments in, in how they're now giving, doing hearings online or remotely and everything. that They've been discussing for years. Suddenly all that's come to fruition. What I would say is a note of caution about flexible working, if you, by that you mean the sense of working from home. Um, it, it's, it's a nice label. But again, there's, there's evidence to suggest that it's the, in the current epidemic, it's mostly the high paid workers in secure jobs who are able to work from home. So they may be flexible working has many, many meanings, but in the sense of whether or not it means you can work at home, fulfill caring responsibilities and the like. The beneficiaries, beneficiaries of that tend to be those in the higher paid sectors. Whereas those in the lower paid sectors, the ones that in the coronavirus have been most exposed to shutdowns and or having to carry on working, those workers often can't work at home. So flexible working can end up being a very much the benefit of the high paid, but not those at the most vulnerable
0: end of the labour market. It's interesting to think about how the pandemic might affect social attitudes to things like social security and Working conditions and workers' rights. Ultimately, I think, I think the pandemic has made us realize this is something that affects all of us. And societal attitudes to, for example, working conditions and workers' rights might change as a result of the pandemic. Do you think that's overly optimistic?
1: Uh, Who 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 knows? I mean, I you know, I'm a lawyer, not 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 really someone with the crystal ball. But I think one of the very interesting things you've seen is that the recognition. The the people that we are most dependent upon when it comes to it for providing the essential services that that we all need, such as healthcare, um, are often the lowest paid. I mean, that's just so stark in the current crisis that the the key workers, the workers who it turns out who are essential for the actual delivery of of the most vital social goods, turn out to be those who are often paid at or close to the national minimum wage Um, and I I wonder whether that fundamental social injustice will uh, retain its its relevance after this pandemic because the 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 pandemic has really shone a bright light on that issue.
0: This is a topic that really impacts all of us whether it's personally or our loved ones or, or people we know and it's great to have the issues laid out so clearly and discussed in this way. It's definitely a topic worth keeping an eye on. So thank you very much for joining us.
1: I mean, if you want to keep abreast of the, of the labor law issues, there, there's the UK labor law blog, in addition to your own excellent blog, of course, but the UK labor law blog, um, which I'm one of the co-editors on that. We, we have a lot of up-to-date and informative stuff on labor rights and coronavirus um, written in an accessible and you know I hope engaging way so that's always a useful source of information if you want more if you want to learn more about the job retention scheme duties to provide personal protective equipment protection of pregnant women um, rights to leave the workplace in circumstances of serious and imminent danger you'll find a lot of information on that
0: thank you so much Michael that's that's fantastic
1: it was a real pleasure thank you Natasha
0: up is brought to you by the Oxford Human Rights Hub. The executive producer is Kira Allman. This episode was produced and edited by me, Christy Calloway-Gale, and it was hosted by Natasha holcroft Emmis. Music for this series is by Rosemary Allman, and show notes for this episode have been written by Sarah Dobby. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you like to listen to your favourite podcasts.